You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our scripture today will be from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, Olivia Rodrigo had a uh, uh, number one song earlier in the spring called Driver's License. You probably heard it. And in it, she talks about this future that she's planned with someone that she loves, someone that she thought loved her back. And she's talking about, you know, getting her driver's license. And it's all part of her big plan to be together more. But as she's driving around, she's heartbroken because he's left her. She's, or he, he's no longer around. And in the chorus that I, I'm sure you know, she says, Guess you didn't mean what you wrote in that song about me because you said forever, now I drive alone, Pastor Street. You promised to love me forever, and yet here I am, alone. And I think this really articulates a fear and an insecurity that many of us have when it comes to the relationships in our lives. You promised to love me forever, but how can I know that you actually mean that? How, how can I know that these aren't just empty words? And this is especially true when it comes to our relationship with God. How can we know that when God promises forever, he means forever? That, that's really the question beneath the many questions that the Apostle Paul asks in this passage here. Is there something is there someone, is there some reason, is there some strange, unforeseen variable that could stop God from loving me? Now, I've, I've officiated quite a few weddings now, and despite the fact that I follow a pretty traditional format for weddings and I follow pretty traditional vows, there is one tradition that I have never been willing to implement into a wedding ceremony, and it's the part where the pastor says, if there is any reason for these two not to be together, speak now or what? Forever hold your peace. This is your opportunity to raise your hand and to stop this wedding. I would, I would, I would die inside if I was a part of a, a wedding like that. 
And really what the statement is, is if you've got some reason that these two should no longer be together, some, something unforeseen, something unnoticed and unresolved, say it now. As we come to the end of Romans 8, this is Paul's sort of like, speak now or forever hold your peace. Look with me again in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, what can be said in response to all that has been mentioned previously in Romans 8 and really previously all throughout the letter to the Romans so far? What is there that could possibly be said now in light of all that Jesus has done to rescue us and to transform our lives? What is there that could be said or presented that could all of a sudden compromise God's love and convince him to walk away from us now? And what Paul shows us through these series of questions is that there is no amount of evidence against us, no amount of opposition against us, nothing that could present itself now or in our future that could undermine God's unbreakable love. The title of this morning's message is God's Unbreakable Love. What God wrote in that song about us, so to speak, he meant. And when God says forever, he means forever. Amen? So, in this passage, there are a series of questions. There are five questions that you and I have to consider if we are going to experience security and confidence and stability in the Christian life. Five questions that are absolutely essential. So we're going to walk through these Five questions. Question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now notice that this is a rhetorical question. He doesn't immediately answer the question. The obvious answer is what? No one. He doesn't give the obvious answer because sometimes it's the most obvious things that we need to stop and reconsider again. It's the most obvious things that we need to linger in. If God, who is great and mighty and sovereign over all of creation, is for us, or it could literally be translated over us, if this God is watching over us, then who could possibly come against us? Now again, it's a rhetorical question. He's going to go on to tell us, well, actually, a lot of things can come against us. But who can stand against us? Now, what this doesn't mean, and I think it's really important to mention what this doesn't mean. God being for us does not mean that God stands for everything that we stand for. Please pay attention to this. Because something we've seen throughout history, and we have sadly seen, especially over the last few years, through these last few political cycles, is a very false line of reasoning that goes something like this. So-and-so claims to stand for God. We stand for God. I stand for this person. God is for me. This must mean that God is for who I am for. Now, as I say it that way, it's easy to understand how people begin to make those connections. Let me say it again. This person claims to stand for God. We stand for God. I stand for this person. God is for me. God must be for who I am for. 
But as one author put it, you can uh, safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that he loves all the same things you love and hates all the same people you hate. There's an account in the Old Testament book of Joshua. The people of Israel are coming into the promised land. And it says in Joshua 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and he said, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? And he said, no. I love that. Are you for us? Or are you for them? Nah. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, which, by the way, we won't experience that bowing before the Lord and undone before him when we think that God stands for us and against others. And he worshiped and he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army, likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, said to Joshua, take off your sandals for your, uh, from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Our time is better spent falling on our faces before the Lord instead of trying to divide the world between good and bad. And we are asking the wrong question when it becomes, God, are you for us or are you for them? Whether or not God is for our cause, whether or not God is for our initiative, whether or not God is for our personal agenda, whether or not God is for our political party or not. Now we're also asking the wrong question when it becomes about God being for our dreams and our own life goals and our own ambitions. We pray and we pray and we pray and we say, Lord, these are the desires of my heart. These are the things I'm running after. These are even the good things I'm chasing after in life and they don't seem to be coming to fruition. Are you for me or are you not? I thought you were for me. If this is the way that we determine whether or not God is for us, then we are constantly going to feel abandoned and disregarded by God. God being for us means that he is deeply invested in our ultimate and eternal good and that he will allow nothing to get in the way of his plan for our lives. Clearly things come against us. Sometimes it's natural. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's relational. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's all at once. Sometimes it feels like the entire universe is against us all at one time. But the hope that we have is that with God on our side, no amount of opposition, no amount of setback or frustration or even trauma can thwart God's good plans for us. What is his good plan for our lives? So we learned about this last week to sanctify us. God's good plan for our lives is that we would more and more every single day reflect the character and life of Jesus Christ to the world around us. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Amen? Let's look at question number two. 
Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, what Paul is getting us to consider through this question is that the gift of God's only son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrificial death on the cross for us is a trustworthy guarantee of God's commitment to us and that he is going to provide us with everything that we need in order to persevere into eternity. This is not a promise of riches. We can read into all things. Well, all things, that must mean all the things that I want. This is not a promise of riches. This is not a promise of health. This is not a promise of fame. This is not a promise of a happy family. This is not even a promise of emotional health. It's not a guarantee of our own personal dreams being fulfilled. It's the hope that God is deeply committed to us and our good, and he will provide us with everything necessary to fulfill his will. Another way of asking this question is like this. Why would God go to such great lengths to save us to now just abandon us? Why would he invest so much to now just leave you? An inspiring story that I've told from the past comes from the late uh, Reverend E.V. Hill and his wife. It's actually a story that he told at uh, Jane's funeral. During his time working alongside the civil rights movement, he received a number of death threats throughout the year. And one night he gets a call, and he, his face changes, and he solemnly puts the phone down, and his wife notices you know, that something's wrong, and he, she begins to press him, and, and he finally tells her that he's received a death threat, and someone has threatened to strap a bomb to his car. The next morning, he wakes up, and he realizes his wife is not next to her. Searches the house, frantically can't find her. He looks out the window, and the car's gone. And after, you know, a few terrible moments, he sees the car pulling back in into the carport, and as she comes into the house, he's upset, and he's like, what on earth were you thinking? Why, why did you do this? And she said, well, I drove around the block to make sure that it was safe for you to get in it. And he made this statement. He said, never, ever, ever from that point forward did I ever question her love and devotion to me. At that point, it would be absolutely stupid for me to think and ever to question whether or not my wife loved me and she was devoted. And what we have in Jesus Christ is an even greater guarantee. He was not just willing to substitute his life for us. He did so. He died. The bomb went off. He, he bore the weight of our sin and our condemnation and our curse so that we could be forgiven and live eternally. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There is no greater gift. There is no greater guarantee than what God has already given us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You really need to consider this question. What further proof could God possibly give you that he is committed to you? Question number three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We live in a world where we are surrounded by opinions and voices 
and criticism, saying this is what you are, this is what you're not, this is the way you failed, you're, 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 you're worthless, you don't add up, and this and that. We also have the voice of the enemy that the Bible describes as the accuser of the brethren that continues to bring charge after charge against God's people. Showing us and reminding us of all the ways that we have sinned against God and we shouldn't belong to his family and what we really truly deserve is damnation and death. And on top of all of this, we are assailed by our own inner critic. The voice of our own self coming against us with all of the negative self-talk about all the ways that we just don't add up. This is the normal human experience. And yet the only opinion that truly matters, the voice that matters more than the world's, the voice that matters more than the devil's, the voice that matters even more than your own inner voice has already definitively spoken over the believer. You are justified. Verse 33, it is God who justifies. Who justifies my existence? Who gives my life meaning and worth? It's not the world. It definitely isn't the devil. It's not even my own self. It's God who has spoken. You are justified. As the apostle John would say in 1 John 3, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Even when our own hearts condemn us, the voice of God speaks up and says, no, you are justified. I think about all the, well, let's go here. The, the, the Christian needs to always come back to this important line of reasoning that Paul is laying out here. And it's this. Who can possibly convince God who has, as we're told here, chosen his people before the foundation of the world? This isn't, your salvation isn't like a last minute decision. You weren't that last minute invite when a spot opened up and you're like, okay, I'll bring so-and-so in before the foundation of the world. How and who is going to convince God all of a sudden that he's made a bad decision on you? And what bombshell piece of evidence could now all of a sudden appear that, that will overturn the verdict that God has already spoken over us? I think about the, net, the like countless Netflix documentaries right now that follow the stories of investigators that go back and work through old cold cases Old court cases from like 50 years ago where evidence was maybe missing or there were, there were holes. And with, and with new technology, they're able to, to find and analyze DNA strands and other bits of evidence in order to overturn a verdict, right? The cha to change the, the outcome. Someone is living in like some town in the Midwest thinking that they got away with a crime 50 years ago and their reckoning day comes. And I think we live our life bracing for that moment. I think we live our lives waiting for that moment where our past is finally going to catch up with us. When there's going to be enough evidence to prove that we are a fake, that we're a phony, that we're too sinful to be here. Now, if you believe, now don't take yourself out of this equation here for just a moment because I think actually a lot of us believe this. If you believe that you are justified before God on the basis of how well you live your life, if you believe that you are justified before God on the basis of your ability to stay on the straight and narrow, 
well then of course you're going to be bracing for the worst. In fact, you have every reason to be paranoid about that. And of course you're going to feel insecure about your, your place in the family of God. And you're always just going to be waiting and bracing for that moment when you're found out. But as Romans has told us the good news that we are not justified by our own righteousness, we're justified through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so for the child of God, the only evidence that is permissible in court, the only evidence that God is now receiving in your case is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect, obedient track record. Can I get an amen? We're going deep into the gospel. I need you with me for this one. As one hymn goes, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. And pardon me. Let's look at question number four. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Now, he's building on the last question, and he's really pressing into this courtroom illustration just a little bit further. And he goes to show us that not only is there no one, or sorry, no charge that can stand against us, but there is no one who can now condemn. Like, like the woman uh, caught in adultery at the very end scene, and he looks around and he says, who stands to condemn you now? Who can condemn? Now, in the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, it says this, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life and limb. This is also known as the double jeopardy clause, meaning you can't be tried and found guilty twice for the same crime. Now, the way I was made aware of this law and that it had nothing to do with Alex Trebek in the second round of his show was from a movie uh, with Ashley Judd called Double Jeopardy. And in it, it follows the story of Libby, the main character, and she's been framed for murdering her husband. And she gets sentenced to carry out her prison term for his death. But while she's in prison, she's on a phone call with her son, and he accidentally calls out to his father, and she realizes that the man that she supposedly killed, spoiler alert, still alive. And he's living under an alias, under a complete different uh, identity in New Orleans, and it's all been a setup. And so she has a conversation with a fellow inmate who's been doing her homework on the judicial system, and she informs her that because she's been convicting of, convicted of killing this guy once already, she can now actually carry out the deed without being tried twice. And I'm not going to give the movie away from that point forward. How does Paul say, think about this, right? The double jeopardy clause. How does Paul say that there's no one who can now condemn us? Okay, he's using a very logical line of reasoning. And really, it's the idea, long before the Constitution, the idea of double jeopardy here. Here it is. And this is very important for us to grasp. There has already been a sentencing and a payment for the crimes of our sin. And in the goodness and the wisdom of God, all of our judgment fell on Jesus. He already took the rap. 
Jesus served the sentence in full for us, so now not even heaven itself can bring a charge against us, God's people. Paul says in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, can I get an amen, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died, he rose, he ascended, and now he serves as our advocate. Now Jesus serves as our defense attorney, if you will, daily bearing his wounds that saved us before the Father, interceding on our behalf, reminding all of heaven itself, I already served the term. As one hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's look at one final question here. And it's found in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Now, there's a famous story from Christian history following the the account of John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 5th century. He'd been brought before the Empress Eudoxia and the Emperor Arcadius, uh, and he was being persecuted for the Christian faith, and they were trying to silence him from proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And first, Eudoxia threatens John with banishment if he doesn't stop proclaiming the gospel. And he replies like this, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But then she said, well, then I'll kill you. No, you can't, for my life is hidden with Christ and God. Well, then I'll take away your treasures, she responded. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven. My heart is there too. Well, then I'll drive you away from all of your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, he said, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. And he goes on to say, I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to harm me. There's nothing that you can do to harm me. And what John is doing is he's expressing his confidence in the promises found in this passage. Can anything separate me from the love of Jesus Christ? And no rhetorical question here. Paul makes sure that we understand it. The answer is no. In all things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, even when we're losing, we're conquering. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing in our human experience, nothing from the spiritual realm, nothing from your past, nothing from your present, nothing from your future, no matter how fierce, no matter how devastating, no matter how traumatizing, no matter which direction it's coming from, nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. Years ago, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. And from my own life and from the many people that I talked to, it was just as profound for the parents reading it as the children hearing it. 
And in it, really the point of the Jesus Storybook Bible is to show what, what she calls or describes as the whispers of Jesus all throughout the Bible. That the entire Bible is a story of Jesus. And each story ends with a variation of the same line. And this is one of the, the ways the story ends. You see, Jesus was showing his people that God would always love them. And here's the line. With a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So they don't need to hide anymore. Or be afraid. Or ashamed. They could stop running from God. And they could run to him instead as a little child runs in their daddy's arms. What is strong enough to finally settle our fears? What is strong enough to finally unravel our debilitating shame? What is strong enough to stop us in that crazy impulse to isolate ourselves and to run from God and to run from other people? The answer is in our passage. It's the unbreakable love of God in Jesus Christ. Only the love of Christ is strong enough to transform our lives in this way. And so Paul says in verse 38, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this. In other words, I'm persuaded. This is something that I can confidently trust. God does not ask you to trust yourself. God is not asking you to believe in yourself. God is not asking you to trust in your ability to love. This has nothing to do with self-confidence and everything to do with confidence in God and his ability to keep loving you, even at your worst. There's going to be times where you feel disconnected from God. I venture to say that for many of us right now, you're feeling disconnected from God. There are going to be times where you fear that God, once and for all, finally abandoned you. He finally got you figured out. All the evidence came forward, and he's deuces. He's out. We are safe in his hands, but that doesn't mean that we don't feel insecure. But the only way to experience the confidence and the stability that Paul displays here, the kind of confidence in God that I believe is inspiring to the world around us, is by using this line of reasoning that he's laid out for us. You, you have to reason your way out of fear. You can't just cross your fingers and just hope for it to go away. You have to use your minds to work your way out of fear. You have to reason your way out of doubt. You have to reason your way out of insecurity in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to reason your way into confidence in the gospel. And Paul has just equipped us with that sort of reasoning. And so today, here's how I want to end. I want to commit these five questions to you. It's a cheesy way of saying it, but I want to deposit these five questions into your hearts, into your lives, into your families, into this community, so that we would revisit them often. And so that we can walk through these questions when times get difficult, when we begin to fear, when we are not persuaded of God's love for us in order to find that stability and to find that confidence in God's unbreakable love for us. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled and striving cease 
my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Let's stand in the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.